John, I'm Paul, I'm George, and I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello and welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. This is Chachi LaPrette. It's a pleasure to have you with us today on our podcast. If you don't know who I am, I am the host of the New England Breakfast with the Beatles radio show, heard in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Maine. And uh, we are produced by the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com. As always, my partner in crime when it comes to our Beatles activities and our podcast, we have Beatles professor, Mr. David Gallant from Suffolk University in Boston. David, how are classes going? Uh, Things are going well, Chachi. Uh, We are here on the Thanksgiving break part of the semester. So things are going well, I think, for the students there on break. Not me, because I'm grading their papers at this time. Well, good for you. It's a pleasure to (laughs) see you again, my friend. And we have a very special guest today, Professor Gallant. Over 50 years ago, the Beatles, led by George Harrison, made their way to India, searching for spiritual awakening, the fullness of joy, the secret of life. And and the Beatles' time in India with the Maharishi was their most prolific, as many of us know, and many of the songs lived on in the White Album and various solo albums. And as I had said a moment ago, we have a very special guest. This author, Beatles author, spent time in the presence of the Maharishi. In fact, Professor Gallant, she was a member of the Maharishi's personal staff for six years, lived in an ashram for 20 years. We're going to ask her about that. She's an accomplished author with over 20 books published in English and 36 foreign editions over 40 book awards. I mean, we have a very special person here today, Professor. In 2018, she wrote what I thought was a fantastic book. I have it right here, The Maharishi and Me. And I really enjoyed this book, Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. And Susan was on our radio show back in 2018. And it's published by her new book, The Inner Light, How India Influenced the Beatles, is published by Permuted Press. And it makes a wonderful holiday gift, I will add as well. So please, Professor, join me as we welcome, and I will call her as you did before we hit the microphones, Dr. Susan Shumsky. Dr. Susan, how are you? I'm so excited to be here with you today, Chachi. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And as I said, I really enjoyed the Maharishi and Me book. It was a lot of fun to read. Very interesting photographs, everything. And your new book, The Inner Light, you know what I loved about the book? Just the simple little things. QR codes in the book. I think that's the first time I've ever seen that, where you can get another angle on what you're doing, photographs, audio. So I thought that was really great. But what inspired you to follow up your Maharishi and Me book with The Inner Light? Well, the Maharishi and Me book was a memoir. It was about my time in the ashrams with Maharishi and what it was like to be with a spiritual master from India and the challenges that I went through and my spiritual journey. And I did write about the Beatles in that book and other celebrities who were with Maharishi at the time. But I wanted so much to tell the whole story about the Beatles, and there wasn't space in that book. So I ended up writing this other book, The Inner Light, which has 512 pages. It has 130 QR codes. It has about 150 photos in it. And it's really an extensive, it's like an encyclopedia about everything having to do with the Beatles and their 
love of India, of Indian culture, Indian musicians, Indian musical instruments, also psychedelics and their spiritual journey. I mean, it's all encapsulated in this book and it's told through the songs, actually, through the song lyrics. Right. And that's one of the things that I, I liked about your book. You certainly, you highlight many Beatles songs in the book and track those songs back to the Maharishi. But what was it like to be on the personal staff, to, to know the man, the guru himself? Were you enlightened much like the Beatles were? When you, I mean, listen, in your book, you put it out there that you were an original hippie back in the 60s. And I, I sit there and your mom didn't like the Beatles. She turned them off on the radio. Yeah. And then you went on to become a hippie. How did your, your mom take that when she realized that you were a hippie in the, in the 60s? Well, I don't think that my mom or my dad were too thrilled about my being a hippie. Especially the drugs part and the sex part, the make love, not war part. Yeah. It wasn't really something on their agenda for their daughter. Yeah, it was, what was it like to be with Maharishi? Well, it was an incredible experience because he was the happiest person I'd ever met or have ever met since then. He was dubbed the giggling guru by the press because he was always laughing and cracking jokes all the time. And he exuded this energy, this aura and you would get it by osmosis. When you were near him, you would feel this energy coming towards you. It was this incredible love energy with this feeling of profound love. And you felt like you were, like you were the only person in the world and, and he made you feel so special. But not only that, it was just a spiritual energy. You felt uplifted. You felt like you were being fed by this spiritual blast of energy all the time when you were with him. So I think that's what attracted the Beatles. I think that they felt that and they sensed it right away when they first met him, which was August 24th, 1967. It's a Hilton in London, the Park Hotel. And they expressed to him that they were really seeking a true spiritual experience and that they had tried to get there through drugs, but that didn't work. And now they saw that what he was offering was something very special and they wanted to learn from him. Maharishi told them to learn from one of the TM teachers in transcendental meditation. That's TM teachers in London. But they said, no, we want to learn from you. And then George uh, jokingly, I don't know if he ever really said this, but he claimed he did. He said to Maharishi, got any mantras? So he was looking for a mantra to take him to the other the spiritual realm. And Patty had already learned transcendental meditation, his wife, Patty. And, and he said, oh, I want my own mantra. That's what he told Patty. So yeah, Maharishi invited them to come with him. He said, okay, I'll teach you. Come to Bangor, North Wales, where I'll be doing this 10-day retreat. And so they traveled with him on the train, on public transportation. They went up to North Wales and that's where they learned transcendental meditation. Unfortunately, they only stayed for a couple of days because Brian Epstein died on the Saturday of that bank holiday bank weekend, bank holiday weekend. Yeah, th that is amazing. Because you know, I will say, Doctor, that the professor and I are both from the Boston area, and there there is a transcendental meditation outpost there near Harvard University, and I went there 
to follow that same kind of a path because I was huge into the Beatles. And certainly when I saw them with the Maharishi, I was like, I want to learn about transcendental meditation. But, the, you know, the Maharishi didn't even know who the Beatles were. Is that correct? He was kind of like sketchy. He doesn't, I think in your book, it said that he didn't even know how many musicians were in the band. He had heard of the Beatles, actually. A person that I knew, Jeffrey Baker, who was with me in India on, on the teacher training course in Rishikesh, mm -hmm. he said that he was traveling with Maharishi mm. throughout England, helping him teach transcendental meditation. And one day they were on a train and Maharishi turned to him and he, he said, how many are the Beatles? And Jeffrey was like, what? You know about the Beatles? He was like so shocked. <laughs> And Jeffrey said, well, I'm not really up on Beatles culture too much, but I think there are four. And Maharishi said, get four copies of my book, Science of Being and Art of Living, and I will autograph those copies and you will give them to the Beatles. And Jeffrey was like, oh, yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get to the Beatles and give them copies. So this was long before Maharishi ever met the Beatles. And the fact was... There are photographs of Maharishi signing. There's actually a film, too, of Maharishi signing his book and handing them to the Beatles in Bangor, North Wales. Well, before we go to the, to the professor, I will add, your book has fantastic photographs, many I've never seen before. I mean, for you to score those photos, kudos to you, because uh, after the professor and I being in the Beatle world for over 45, 50 years, these are pictures I've never seen before. So Beatle fans yeah. should see the photos. They did a great job on these never-before-seen pictures. Yeah, I got uh, many of them from the musicians, from the Indian musicians or their families. Wow. And they told me stories as well that I put in the book, which is, I'm so thrilled. It really touched my heart to connect with these musicians because they, they were so heartfelt about their connection with George Harris. Mm. It was amazing. Yes, Professor. Chachi, I would, uh, I think that one thing that some of our listeners, if they decide to, to go ahead and, and, and get Dr. Shumsky's book, they need to set aside quite a bit of time to get through it. Not only was she bragging a little bit about how long the book is, but what's great about the link, as you've already mentioned, Chachi, are, are all of the, what we used to call hyperlinks, the way that you go off in the different directions with the QR codes. And like you said, the photos and understanding the story that at least the first part of the book, a lot of people may think they know, but Susan certainly follows it in a, a sort of a different path. So it really is a neat sort of time investment in a way with the text. I think one thing I'd, I'd like to hear, Susan, if you wouldn't mind, letting our, our listeners know that by late 67 and into 68, the Beatles have anything and everything they could ever want in the world. And so... This search, you mentioned that they that drugs didn't necessarily give them the enlightenment. They didn't abandon drugs for transcendental meditation completely. But uh, what do you think drove them to that point of really seeking something other than anything and everything they could have their fingers on and in, that somehow that was not satisfying? And do you think it was not satisfying to all of them equally? Well, I can't say. Uh, I can't measure that. There's no way to yeah. measure that. I think it's, a lot of people like to talk about the Beatles as a unit and they did everything together. And even they went on this, this spiritual adventure, this journey, both outward and inward, they did it together. They took it very differently. Each of them did, but I, I guess it's not something to be measured, but I, I think I'm, I'm curious in, in terms of your, in how you feel as though they each came to this moment. Right. So the Beatles were a product of the time, David. 
it was a time of spiritual seeking. We were flower children. We wanted to make love, not war. We wanted to get rid of this insanity of Vietnam. And the Beatles were a part of it. Not only were they a part of this, they were leaders in it, actually. They were leaders in this flower child revolution. And they were seeking spiritual awakening, just like the rest of us. Our gurus at that time, including gurus of the Beatles as well, was Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, who later became Ram Das, And they wrote the book, The Psychedelic Experience. And they were trying to get people to, they said that we could reach nirvana through taking LSD. So we wanted nirvana. We were seeking that. And the Beatles weren't immune to that. As a matter of fact, John Lennon found the book, Psychedelic Experience, in the bookstore that his friend was running there and, and that Paul was very involved with also, and that Peter Asher was one of the co-owners of. And he sat down in the city and he read the entire book in one go. And he was very serious about experiencing nirvana through LSD. So he actually took the book at face value and he followed the instructions. It was like an instruction manual for taking LSD. So he was very serious about it. Obviously, George was very serious about it. He had a natural spiritual bent. He was already studying sitar with Ravi Shankar. And, and I'll just tell you what Maharishi said about the four Beatles, about three of the Beatles. He said that Ringo is always in meditation and he goes by heart. And that George, that this is his last life, that he's a very advanced soul and this is his last life. And he said that John has many more lives to go and that he must, um, his obsession with women or it will ruin him. So that's what... Maharishi said about the spiritual status of the various Beatles. Yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by um, by what he said about Ringo. Did, would you like to extend a little bit of discussion there that Ringo is sort of always already in meditation, that that he is somehow in not so much a meditative state, but he is he's following a principle almost naturally in some way? I mean, what, how would you explain that a little bit further? I'm, I'm fascinated by that. There's an innocence about Ringo on his peace and love initiative. And he's just, he's so heartfelt. He's such a heartfelt person. Might, might some that of that, that might some really... of that have been, might some of that have been that Ringo had less of the world to get rid of because he came from nothing where the others, even if they were, they were, they were lower middle class or working class, Ringo was really, really sort of at the bottom of the social pecking order. And to have come from nothing, it may be easier to shed all of that worldliness. Is that, you think maybe that's part of it? I think that's a very insightful idea, David. I think that's very insightful of you. And I do believe that he, that there was this innocence and gratitude. Somebody who's come from the level of poverty that he rose up from, there's a gratitude. He really appreciates everything that's been given to him, he so much appreciates the fact that he became a part of the Beatles and and that that gratitude is just spiritual quality. I, I think that when you mentioned the the Maharishi's assessment of, of their varying levels, if you will, of either enlightenment or insight, it reminds me of something that, that Paul had said 
throughout that part of the 60s, if we're looking at it album-wise, between Revolver and Sgt. Pepper and shortly after, up until the White Album, including the trip to India, is, and I think this is a different way of looking at hippies or, or the psychedelic revolution, America versus the UK, is that he said that they grew up into children again, that they matured into a childhood. They matured into an innocence that they had to sort of get back to, right? And we think of that as Crosby, Stills, and Nash getting back to the garden in Woodstock, but that sense of, of, of getting back to the perceptions of childhood and, and maybe sometimes the, the happy laughing nature of the Maharishi sort of brings that to mind. I don't know. What, what do you think of that growing into childhood? I think that's beautiful. And yeah, Maharishi was uh, very childlike. Um, he was very, very uh, smart too. Yeah. He was business savvy and all of that. But his persona was extremely childlike and there was a, such a joy with him. As a matter of fact, that saying such a joy, that was <laughs> one of my things that Maharishi used to say a hundred times sure. a day, you know, joy, yeah. such a joy. <laughs> Everything was such a joy. So you got this song, everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey, which people don't necessarily realize that that entire, all the lyrics of the entire song are things that Maharishi used to say on a daily basis. He was, except George said, except the bit about the monkey. And George, <laughs> yeah, right. but the, no, the, the chant, if you will, almost like an incantation of such a joy is, is really sort of the, the, the center of that song. It also rocks the hell out of music, but that's beside the point. <laughs> and when, when you say that the Maharishi said that George was in his last life, George had said that he didn't say he was in his last life, but he talked of that a lot. He believed in reincarnation and for him to spot that, I think that really insightful, but the John Lennon part, women were a problem for, for him and he had many lives to go. I, I would guess he, he, that's what he meant. And then Ringo is very childlike, but you talk about the Maharishi being childlike. And I think in his giggle, it led to a lot of criticism. Certainly Paul wrote fool on the hill indirectly about the Maharishi, right? Right. I mean, he wrote fool on the hill before he ever met Maharishi or even possibly knew about him because he had seen him on television. Oh, I see. He was on Granada on television uh, in Manchester. But yeah, Fool on the Hill, he, Paul said it was like it was about somebody like Maharishi. Right. That's, and he was that's... inspired by there was a hermit who lived in a cave and missed World War Two completely. So that was when he was that's what inspired him to write the song. But it was very prescient. I mean, the way he wrote that song and then met Maharishi soon afterwards is amazing. And so typified what Maharishi is like. It was really a great biography of Maharishi, that song. Mm-hmm. And I I love the cover of your book, too. It's very Sgt. Pepper-like. And you certainly That chose... was intentional. It that was, was intentional. It was Sgt. Pepper-like. As a matter of fact, I designed that. I actually created the collage that's on the cover. And the collage has all the Beatles. It has Maharishi. It's got various spiritual masters, all the spiritual masters that the main spiritual masters that influenced the Beatles. And it's mm-hmm. also got Indian musicians on it. So it's Sergeant Pepper like. And if you notice, it's got Lakshmi, uh, the statue of Lakshmi on the cover in the very front and center. 
just like it does on Sgt. Pepper album. Interesting. She's also on Sgt. Pepper front and center. Oh, interesting. And now, then there's the Taj Mahal in the background. Of course. That's a great cover. That's the first thing that struck me when I saw it. But in terms of, he seemed pretty insightful, the Maharishi on each Beatle. Was there a Beatle that was better at meditating and one that wasn't good at all meditating? Certainly John wrote about, I'm so tired because he would meditate all day and he couldn't sleep at night. So who was the best right. meditator in the eyes of the Maharishi? George? Well, it was Ringo. Yeah. He said that Ringo is always in meditation and goes by feeling and heart. So he just, that innocence, that the fact that heart is foremost, the fact that love is foremost, that is what makes a, a really great meditator, somebody who's not in their head. Uh, actually, Maharishi said, uh, after he said that Ringo goes to feeling hard, he said, as for the other Beatles, too much brain is in the way. Really? Yeah. And, and, and Ringo was the first to leave despite being the best meditator. Well, that wasn't the reason why he left. It wasn't. No, of course. The reason <laughs> that he only stayed for a little over a week was because he had a six month old child at home. Mainly, oh. that was the reason. Mm -hmm. And also, Maureen was very unhappy there because she couldn't handle the, the bugs. She was scared of bugs. There's <laughs> a legend that one fly kept her hostage for hours until Rigo could come back and swat it. But well, I mean, a lot of the jungle, there's a lot of bugs there. Centipedes, millipedes, scorpions. And very large spiders. And, yeah, so there's a lot of wildlife there. And Maureen just didn't like the bugs. And you spent 20 plus years there. I spent 20 plus years in various ashrams of Maharishi. I was not in India for that amount of time. I was, I was in India for about for six months, the first time I went there. And it was with Maharishi. I've been there a few times. And what was it like for you when you first met the Maharishi, the moment you met him? How did that come about? You know, the first time I met him was at an airport in Los Angeles. And he he was coming to give a lecture. And so I was standing in line, terrified, grasping for life onto my crappy wild wildflowers that I had picked on the way there. And everyone else had beautiful flowers to offer him from flower shops. And I was dressed in an outrageous hippie costume with my clunky sandals and my dress that looked like a rag that I'd gotten from a junk store and my granny glasses. And I looked ridiculous and my no bra and hairy legs and underarms. And I'm standing there with my flowers and Maharishi's going down the line and smiling and booing and gooing at everyone. And they're all giving him these beautiful flowers. And he's just walking down the line of people, corridor of people. There's people on both sides of him. And he's passing through and and smiling and giggling. And then he comes to me and he stops. He hadn't stopped before. He stops. He looks me up. He looks me down. He scorns and scowls at me. And, and, and then he snatches the, the flowers from me and says, Jay Grudem and walks on. I was devastated. Wow. It was awful. It was like Yogananda's first meeting with his guru. It was kind of similar to his. Yogananda Paramahansa Yogananda. He's and were you, were you famous saint who wrote autobiography of a yogi. 
Did that disappoint you, his reaction? Oh, yeah. It was awful. How do you follow up that and end up being his, uh, one of his assistants? Well, yeah. <laughs> I just got to prove yourself, I guess. Who knows? <laughs> Professor? Chachi, who, who amongst us have, has not been rejected by their spiritual guide at some point in life, right? So now, I, Susan, I'm not as, as intimately familiar with your, with your autobiography as, as Chachi was referring to earlier. So the airport meeting, could you just, I want to follow this up, but could you situate that for me? What year was that? That was in September of 1967. September was, of 67. Yeah, the Beatles had met Maharishi. Right. So your your airport meeting was at that time in Los Angeles. It was, yeah. It was. And so then your fir- your first formal induction into a training or formal that was uh, from, which was was around that time as well. That was at the beginning of August in 1967 before the Beatles met Maharishi. Okay. I learned yeah. transcendental meditation before the Beatles. And if you don't mind my asking, I mean, um, it's, it isn't necessarily a spiritual journey or if one wants to call it a faith that you may have been born into. What faith were you born into? Oh, I was born Jewish. Uh-huh. So then I later became a Hindu. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. And uh, I guess I, I, I want to sort of go a little bit sideways with this and because for everything that Maharishi had been lauded for in terms of being a little bit of a of of a guide for Westerners into Eastern thought, religion, philosophy, and and spiritual enlightenment, is also profoundly a successful businessman and entrepreneur. How vital would you say the Beatles were to, like we like to say these days, his brand? Well, I would say they made his brand. <laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't. He was. Not very well known before the Beatles learned Transcendental Meditation. As a matter of fact, he was better known in England than he was in America. And But, but the Beatles definitely put him on the map. So he, about the, Beatles, the Beatles helped bring TM to TM trademark. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The, the thing was that even though the Beatles walked out on him in India, and there was this split. That was just the beginning of Maharishi's fame. Maharishi became incredibly famous in, in the 1970s. Right. He right. trained 40,000 teachers to teach transcendental meditation during his lifetime. And those teachers taught 6 million people to meditate during Maharishi's lifetime. We're going to take a minute right now to tell you about another podcast that you should definitely check out. It's called Past Tens, a top 10 time machine. That's right, Chachi. Tens, as in T-E-N-S. Your host, David Yaz, and the chartmeister, Michael Milwolves, travel back in time to revisit the top 10 hits on the Billboard charts on a given day in the past. Sometimes the songs hold up nicely. Other times they make you cringe. And that's when comedy and chaos ensue on Past Tens. You know, David, I think the best episode was when they went back to 1964 because the list was packed with Beatles songs and also because those bozos, Milton Dave, respectively, had the good sense to have us on that episode to school them on all things Beatles. I agree, Chachi. That was a fantastic episode, probably their best. But also check out the episode where I filled in for Milt. It spared the audience the usual allotment of milk fart jokes. You'll have to listen to it to what other types of bodily function jokes are put in. I had no idea that you were a guest host. I feel offended and betrayed. But I have to admit, for a couple of knuckleheads, these guys put on a fantastic show. 
It's past tens, a top 10 time machine. Find it anywhere you get your podcasts or visit timemachinepod.com. That's timemachinepod.com. I recall in your previous book, Maharishi and Me, that you had said that, and correct me, please, if I'm wrong, I'm going by memory, but he paid, and this goes to the falling out that the Beatles had with him, that perhaps he paid too much attention to Mia Farrow. The information that the Beatles received was wrong. He was not making advances to her. What do you, what, how do you assess that situation there? Yeah, everybody wants to make excuses for Maharishi and they want John Lennon to be wrong. But in fact, reality is that Maharishi made a pass at Mia Farrow. It did happen. And Mia talks about it not only in her memoir, but also on an interview that I quote in my new book, The Inner Light. And she wasn't the only one. During the time that she and the Beatles were in India, I know personally that there were four total women, that Ma, at least four, that Maharishi either had sex with or, or tried to. Well, even a guru needs a companion, a what? Yes, <laughs> you would think so, yeah. You would think that people would give him that leniency. But reality was that he called himself Bal Brahmachari Maharishi. Actually, Bal Brahmachari Mahesh Yogi is the name that's on his passport. I have a picture of his passport in my book, The Inner Light. Mm-hmm. And that's the name on there. And that means life celibate, Mahesh Yogi. His name was Mahesh and Yogi, obviously. A yogi is someone who is his practice. Yoga is a, actually someone who's accomplished in yoga. How well, do you reconcile that, Susan? Well, it's unreconcilable. It's a paradox. Right. He's, he's a great man. He founded an a wonderful organization. He taught millions of people to meditate and it benefited their lives. And he also was not entirely truthful about his status as far as celibacy. He not only did he claim that he was celibate, he encouraged, not only encouraged, he made his close disciples. He told them that they must be celibate. He demanded so, of others what he wasn't living Correct. up to himself. Correct. And not only did he tell them to be celibate, he said everyone should be celibate. Even married couples should be celibate. I mean, this was one of his platforms was celibacy was one of the major things that he told people to do. So my friend, Judith Bork, who wrote a book it's called Robes of Silk, Feet of Clay. She had a one-year sexual relationship with Maharishi. And I know several other women too that I can name names. I actually know of 15 women total who either had sex with Maharishi or were bidden to have sex with him. We made pass that. Well, he's, he's, on, he's a human being. The good that he's done far outweighed that. It's not like he killed somebody. It was all right. about love. <laughs> and uh, we all fall in love, some more than others, many times, some right. maybe not, but he's just a man. But That's the good he's all- done. That's what Paul said to John. When John complained to him, oh, he's just an old lech. We can't go following that, quote unquote. That's what John said to Paul when he got back from India. Paul said, but he didn't say he was a god. As a matter of fact, he said, don't treat me like a god. I'm just a meditation teacher. That was a quote from Paul. 
from Paul, what Paul said to John. So Paul didn't think it was a big deal, but John definitely thought it was a big deal. He was very, very upset about it. So was George. They were both very upset about it. They were devastated by it because they were looking for, quote unquote, the answer. And they thought that he would give them the answer. And when he turned out to not to have feet of clay, when he turned out to not be what they expected, they were devastated. Coming from John Lennon, one of the biggest walking contradictions ever. <laughs> really? The guy who had hundreds of sex with hundreds of people while he was married to Cynthia. It's very right. funny. Right, right. It is a walking contradiction. Professor? Oh, well, uh, y- yes. So walking contradiction wasn't. He wasn't preaching to others not to do it, though, and wasn't making his claim or stake his claim or, or or have as part of his founding principles of his faith and his teachings that as well. So, yeah, walking contradictions or it's it's it is it is an interesting thing to to look into, but also, I guess, the the legacy of it. And I guess I have no other term for it, but the commercial empire that is TM and all of its offshoots and all of its permutations and all of its other teachings and yoga centers and other types of parts of a, uh, in some ways, of, 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 of a monolith of faith that has been very, very, very profitable. I don't know, Susan, if Maharishi had descendants that are still part of this. I don't know what else to say, but corporation, how does that, how has that actually worked in the wake of his passing, which was what, six, less than a decade ago? Yeah, he died in 2008. Yeah, lower than more than it, well, yeah. More than a decade. Time flies. But I remember yeah, it. We, we talked about, we talked about it in class because it happened not you know, around the time we were discussing this in, in one semester and during the class and went through the New York Times obituary and reflected back on what we had learned. How did how is that legacy still in operation? Yeah, I mean, the same people are still leading the organization. It, he chose a, a successor and the organization goes on. And David Lynch got very involved with it and he found that David Lynch Foundation, which is something that perpetuates transcendental meditation throughout the world and, and also really solicits a lot of celebrities to get involved and has been successful in doing that. And yeah, so it continues through the same channels as it has before with some added because the David Lynch Foundation is also doing a lot of charity work for veterans, for people, for children at risk for those who've been abused and so on, for prisoners. So they're trying to do the same thing, keep on the tradition of what Maharishi had originally, his vision. His vision was a world at peace through transcendental meditation. He had, Even in the very early days, in the early 1960s, when he began teaching TM in India, he claimed even back then that if we had, well, at first it was 10% of the population meditating, we could create world peace. And then that kept getting reduced from 10% to 1% to one-tenth of 1%. And the reason is because he kept seeing how effective it was. As a matter of fact, what he did was he sent hundreds of TM meditators, transcendental meditation meditators, to war-torn areas and to crime-ridden areas And also the scientists did statistical analysis and they found that when people meditated together in large groups in these areas, that the crime rate reduced, that the war subsided, that in fact, they were able to prove scientifically that meditation, transcendental meditation specifically, had this effect 
of what they called the Maharishi effect. And the Maharishi effect was a small percentage of the population meditating would create world peace. And John Lennon wrote a song about that. It's called Revolution. And in the song, he says that you can't, can't really get to world peace through treaties, le leaders, and so on, just like Maharishi used to always say. Maharishi used to always say that in order for the forest to be green, the trees must be green. In order for the world to be at peace, the individuals must be at peace. So John goes on to say, you've got to change your mind instead. That's the way that the only way we can have revolution. That's the only way we can have world peace. So that was his song that he wrote under the influence of Maharishi. Does that effort still go on today where they go to the, certainly there's a war going on, which is still an amazing thing to even realize at this day and age. I know. Yeah. It's sad what's going on over there, but there is, does that, does that effort still exist to go to those areas and meditate? Is there a, a group of people that still do that? Yeah, I think that they have been doing some in recent years. I can't say that they're doing it in Ukraine. I don't know uh, because I, I'm not involved with the Transcendental Meditation sure. Organization anymore. Sure. Sure. But I wouldn't be surprised if they if they did or if they do, because that's exactly what Maharishi would have done. He yeah, would have sent yeah. people there by now. Yeah. One thing you said in your book that struck me, because I never knew this, that George's mom George as a child, she was into Indian music. She listened to oh, Air India, and she would dance yeah. around like she's an Indian dancer when he right. was a young boy. I never, never read that before. When he was in utero, actually. Oh, right, right, right. In, in utero, womb. that's right. When right. he was in her womb, she was listening to what they called AIR, which was All India Radio, Yep, which was broadcast in England. And she loved listening to the Indian music. Wow. Oh, that's what Louise Harrison said. That's, that's George's sister. Yes, right. And and George was so into the Maharishi's autobiography. You had said in your book that he had a couple of cases on hand at his home and he'd give them out as gifts, right? Okay. Yeah. It was called Autobiography of a Yogi, which oh, was that's... written by Paramahansa Yogananda. Mm -hmm. And that was a wonderful, incredible book that had a huge influence on all of us flower children back in the 1960s. And George Harrison wasn't the only one who it was one of his favorite books. Also, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley, who was also very spiritual and used to give out spiritual books to people. He gave out Autobiography of a Yogi, and, he, and Elvis also gave out another book called The Impersonal Life. And two other books that Elvis was into was The Science of Mind by Ernest Holmes. And also he was into Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken. Wow, I had never known that. And and Elvis was unable to even help himself in those last years of his life. It's pretty sad. Yeah, yeah. It's bad, yeah. Very but when I went to visit Graceland, I was really surprised to see the impersonal life with Elvis Presley's picture on the cover in their bookstore. And also when I went on the tour, they, it, they showed Elvis's, his desk had things stacked on the desk and there was an open book of science and mind by Ernest Holmes. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I was really surprised all these spiritual books that yeah. Elvis was into. And he used to keep cases of, of these books, this personal life specifically on his airplane and he would give them out to people. Wow. 
Wow, I'd never known that. That's that's unbelievable. But one thing I'm jumping around, and I apologize. It's all that's things good. popping that's in my head. But as a kid, well, longer than that, I was a big Johnny Carson fan. Yeah, would watch every night, stay up late, despite my parents. And uh, you'd mentioned that the Maharishi was a guest a couple of times. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier. He was kind of, the Maharishi was kind of scrutinized by the press, a giggly. His giggle didn't really help that much in understanding the man. But Johnny, and I see this happening. You say in your book, he kind of like rolled his eyes here and there, something to that effect, and and almost made a joke of the Maharishi. I never saw that episode. I, I definitely made a joke of him and rolling his eyes. And I was like, Looking at the audience as, as if this is all ridiculous and it's an in-joke, yeah. But despite that, the fact that Maharishi was on Johnny Carson and on Merv Griffin especially, that was when the people were lining up to learn Transcendental Meditation. I mean, the media back then was, there was a lot less media back then. There were, I think, 70 million people that watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. So, yeah, the, the media at that point had tremendous influence on people. So when Maharishi appeared on these talk shows, TM exploded. Everybody wanted to learn. Yeah. So despite the ridicule, the man was doing great things for, for mankind and absolutely saving many people's lives. I remember in Harvard Square near Harvard University going to TM classes many, many years ago and it seemed like Harvard University was like a very, it was a central point for so much that was going on in the country, riots and anti-war. And it seemed like TM in Harvard Square, it was, I remember being there and the lines were out the door. So wow. it had an effect on millions of people, as you say, despite people like Johnny Carson and, and certain members of the well, press. With help of Johnny Carson. Yeah. There's, there's no no publicity, than bad publicity. That's what <laughs> That's what they say. It's yes. true. <laughs> yes. Professor? So as the, the life I've spent in, in higher education, uh, always when we have guests on, I'm always curious a little bit about your own educational journey, both maybe as a student prior to getting into TM, but then afterwards as well as an instructor. So what I had difficulty finding anything about your formal education. Yeah, I actually went to college at California College of Arts and Crafts. And uh -huh. I was an artist, trained as an artist. Okay. And then I went to study with Maharishi and spent a couple of decades with him. And then I studied with some other people, something called Teaching of Intuitional Metaphysics, which was founded by Ann and Peter Meyer of San Diego. And that's where I studied more about new thought and metaphysics. And I, I wrote a book called Divine Revelation, which is my doctoral thesis that I did. And, and, and is that is that uh, is that thesis from the uh, the school you just referenced, or yeah, um, yeah, it was from that. Okay, that's where I studied after I left the TM organization. I got involved with this other sure. School. Sure. Yeah. Have you ever taught out at the Institute at all? That's a Buddhist organization, Naropa. Yeah. And no, I haven't. But they, 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 they're, they're also very, I mean, they have lots of, of, of faith and spiritual angles that are, that are taught through there as well. So what do you, what would you say are, what you get most out of being a teacher? 
Well, I get uplifted spiritually whenever I teach or even when I talk. And I mean, even even doing an interview like this today uplifts me tremendously because I feel like I'm giving some information, like I'm giving something that will help people and maybe enlighten them, maybe bring them further into spiritual spirituality which is really what I've dedicated my life to is helping people to take command of their own destiny in powerful, positive ways and to become self-empowered. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I talk about my books or write or communicate with people in any way, that is very enriching for me. I'm sure you feel the same way being a professor. Well, <laughs> I now, wish I could yeah, the, go to your classes uh, about the Beatles. That's a cool thing to study. Every- Everybody always says that un, 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 until they have to write the papers and take the exams. But I'm sure that you would be a model student. Now, this is, yeah, I, I don't want to cut to the to the chase or the end of it. But when it, when we're talking about teachings, sacred texts, if you will, I think a lot of folks who might listen to this program and folks that Chachi and I know treat the Beatles song catalog as sacred text in a lot of ways. And now it's very hard to choose. But in terms of the enlightenment, when you encounter or hear a Beatles song, which is the Beatles song that has a special way of uplifting you, even if it's only slightly more than the others? Which one would that be? Across the universe. Okay. Beautiful. That beautiful Great answer. Great job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, professor, Beatle Professor Gallant, Dr. Susan, teaches freshmen. And he's been teaching them Beatles, the Beatles for over 15 years at Suffolk University. So, Professor, I'll ask you, how do your students react to this phase of the Beatles career with the Maharishi being the most prolific period of their careers together? And how do they react to to what happened there for the Beatles? Well, I, I wish that we had world enough in time, as the old poet would say, to really do a deep dive in a lot of these areas. Oftentimes, when we get to discussing India, it is both right after, and not to make too too much of an issue of it, but it's right after the death of Brian Epstein has, has been mentioned before, and sort of the way that the Beatles express how that is a shock to them. But as they are first initially understanding some of Maharishi's teachings, it's a way for them to understand and negotiate that grief, right? And so we, we go from that to oftentimes looking at India almost inextricably bound up with the music that is produ- that is created there. And then that comes right after it. And so it, it's difficult to do a whole set piece just on the spiritual movement and everything that goes on there without it being related to the music that, you know, everything from it's got something to high, except me and my monkey, dear prudence. Blackbird, anything that is sort of it has its genesis there in, in India. So that's basically how we do discuss it. I'll ask the students about their own sense of spirituality, which has already been a bit of a discussion coming out of Sergeant Pepper when, when we, we are looking at George as leading them there. How is even that journey finds its roots in a song like Within You, Without You from Sergeant Pepper, which is right before it. So we try to sort of keep a conversation going about something I had brought up previously. When the world is at your feet, now this is a way of retreating from it in a way, right, to to that inner journey. And so that's sort of the context within which we, we discuss it. Yeah. Well, Professor, Professor, you mentioned the death of Brian Epstein and Dr. Susan. For me, I kind of felt like when the Maharishi told them to, you know, what what he said to them specifically, you probably can tell us. 
but I felt like he kind of made the Beatles just put his death aside, move on, be happy. And did it keep them from confronting the grief of losing Brian? I mean, Brian kept them together. And I, I sit here and I wonder, well, if there was no Maharishi, how would the Beatles have reacted to the death of Brian Epstein? Would it be more outwardly? I mean, when you see the interview of John getting off the train and, and he doesn't, he's, he says that boy, he told us just to be happy or whatever he he's told the press, but I kind of felt like it, he made them push the grief aside. Am I, am, am I wrong here? Well, it's interesting that you bring this up. Yeah, I think that they would have reacted differently if Maharishi had, hadn't told them that they should be happy. Yeah, I think that the Beatles would have reacted differently if Maharishi hadn't told them. He was trying to teach them something about when somebody dies that they can, that that person who has passed over can actually feel and sense the feelings of the people who are left behind. And he was trying to tell them that. And, but later on, John was very angry that Maharishi had said that. And so was Marianne Faithful, by the way. She happened to be in the room when that happened. And she mentioned that it was very callous the way she thought it was very callous the way Maharishi didn't take it seriously. Really? So, yeah. So I think... I think John really, it was just another thing that he didn't like about Maharishi when he realized that, in fact, he called him a fucking idiot over that. Really? Interesting. Well, listen, this has been truly a fascinating conversation. Before we wrap up, Professor, I'll I'll let you get in any last questions, but I do want to let everybody know who's watching. The book is called The Inner Light, How India Influenced the Beatles, published by Permuted Press. Dr. Susan Shumsky, she also wrote Maharishi and Me, Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. I highly recommend both books. Love the QR codes. I love the Within Without You QR code where you could listen to the orchestra oh, yeah. playing it. I mean, That's just, the best QR code. It's I mean, so great. It, it's unbelievable how now QR codes are in our books nowadays. And I'm very old school. I need a hardcover book. I'm not good with digital books but I'm getting better. But I certainly enjoyed the QR codes as another route to understanding what you write. And so it's a fantastic book, especially during holiday gift giving. I would recommend that uh, you get both of Dr. Shumsky's books for the Beatle fan or music lover or spiritual person in your life. This book can service all of those different kinds of people. So thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you and thank you for joining us on Get Back to the Beatles. You can find the book at Amazon, do you have a website or anything, Dr. Chomsky? Yeah, I have a couple of websites, drsusan.org, drsusan.org, and also divinetravels.com. That's plural on the travels, D-I-V-I-N-E-T-R-A-V-E-L-S at A-O-L.com. Do you go back to India at all? Sometimes, yeah. The last time I was there was 2013, where I took a group to what's called the Kumbha Mela, which is a huge festival that George Harrison had wanted to attend. In fact, the Beatles, when they were in India, were intending to to visit the Kumbha Mela, which was nearby in Hardwar at that time. The Kumbha Mela takes place in four different places throughout India over the course of 12 years. It's a 12-year rotation. And the Beatles happened to be there 
when the Kumbh Mela was going on right down the road from Rishikesh, just a few miles away from Rishikesh, like 10 miles away, there was a huge Kumbh Mela. And Maharishi wanted the Beatles to ride in on elephants. But George said, please don't make us ride in on elephants. We're all, always seeing the world from the back of an elephant. We want to walk with the pilgrims and maybe we'll see Babaji under a tree. Isn't that beautiful? That's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. And Mr. Gallant and I have a mutual friend who, who spent time in the ashram, and he always tells us about the giant spiders that actually attack and eat mice. So I don't know how you <laughs> you lived them. I don't know if you experienced anything like that. But no, he was, I didn't meet those those spiders when I was there. He visited an, an ashram. But I did meet some millipedes and centipedes and those types. And oh there's lots of peacocks and crows, very noisy crows. And there were monkeys that would jump on top of my head. I mean, on top of the roof. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> wow. And, then, and I always think, monkeys. if you listen to the White Album, Bungalow Bill, I always hate that guy for killing tigers. Right. And meditating with, the, with God during the day and killing animals at night. I'm an animal right. rights activist. Yeah, and there's so a couple of pictures in the book of that with the, with the tiger, the actual tiger and the actual Bungalow Bill. Those, there's two photos in the book. Yeah, Richard Cook. The Richard Cook. Rick Cook. Rick yeah. Cook. Yeah, he yeah. gave me permission to use the photos. Yeah, the thing is that he became a animal rights activist himself after that. He never, ever did hunting again. And he began being a photographer for National Geographic. And that's the only thing he ever shot was pictures after that. Wow. Now <laughs> I like the guy. So he's yeah. still, he still yeah, walks. You can love him now, yeah. He's still alive. Yes. Wow. Well, Professor, we got to get the Bungalow Bill on our podcast. That yeah, would be you nice. should. You should get him on. Yeah, because I, 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 I was disheartened by the, uh, the killing of the tigers. But that's great that you finished the story for me. I appreciate that. Yeah. Professor, any final words, anything you'd like to add before we well, say goodbye? Yeah, I, I want to thank, thank Dr. Shumsky for sort of enlightening us to a lot of the complications and, and even the contradictions that there are so many different levels to not only the Beatles story, but specifically within that, the Beatles journey to India, what they did there, what they got out of it. Yes, the music that came out of it, what what became permanent part of their lives and what was transitory in some way. So I do think that it, it would provide to be a, a very fascinating read if someone wants to put in the work like meditation is work. It doesn't come easy that if they put in the work, they'll be able to handle the fact that the book does go off in those different directions. But I do think that the the way that a lot of, at least my students in their generation, the way that their minds are wired can probably handle a lot of those offshoots and the way that the book takes them on different places and then comes back to a central point. So I do think that it's a very, very interesting approach. And I appreciate her, her candor and her willingness to spend some time with us today. I certainly do as well. But before you go, Dr. Susan, tell me about the prediction that the Maharishi made about the Beatles. Oh, he told them that if they didn't continue their transcendental meditation practice, that the band would break up. Wow. He was right about that, Professor. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. And if they didn't if they didn't if they didn't continue on that journey that they would that they would break up. And yeah. There's a lot involved with that prediction. Yeah. And and he told all four of them. Yeah, he told them that when they were in India. Wow. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, Dr. Shumsky, such a pleasure to see you again after our second interview. We really appreciate it. And 
wish you only the best. Enjoy the holidays. God bless you. And thank you for your second book. It's fantastic. And it's really something that all Beatle fans and music fans and spiritual searchers should read. The Inner Light, How India Influenced the Beatles. Thank you for coming on Get Back to the Beatles, Dr. Shumsky. And thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed it, Chachi and also David. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. And so on's another episode of Get Back to the Beatles. You've been listening to Professor David Gallant, Beatles professor from Suffolk University. My name is Chachi Lopret, host of New England's Breakfast with the Beatles. And our program, Get Back to the Beatles, is brought to you by and produced by the Boston Podcast Network. Be well, my friends, and see you back here very, very soon. Bye-bye. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.